Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The History Channel Original Podcast. What do you think of when you think of summer? The warmth of the beating sun, the sting of chlorine and sunscreen in your eyes, and probably the smell of charcoal smoke wafting off a backyard grill. It's the smell of outdoor parties, long days, burgers, and beer. And in the 1950s, two men made it their mission to take that summer backyard taste and produce it en masse. And when they did, they introduced the world to Burger King. The Burger King brand is defined in essence by the flame-broiled burgers. This is Adam Chandler, the author of Drive Through Dreams. And he says there's one flame-broiled burger in particular that captured that backyard grilling spirit. Burger King's The Whopper, of course. Part of why everyone loves the Whopper, and I mean, there's nobody who doesn't love the Whopper out there. If they say so, they're lying. It's the backyard burger taste. You know, it really does have that charbroiled sort of sense to it that makes it, you know, feel like something you can make yourself. The fast food hamburger, known for its four ounces of flame grilled beef, sesame seed bun, ketchup, mayonnaise, lettuce, tomatoes, pickles, and sliced onions. Trace that charboiled taste back several decades and you'll find two Florida men eager to try something new and break into the burgeoning industry of fast food. It's what they would start with and what they'd end with, a burger that became a powerhouse. This is the food that built America. Stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll take you from 1950s America to 2022, tracing the story of how an iconic burger defined our relationship with fast food. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Nowadays, it seems there's nothing more American than the fast food burger. And when you walk into a fast food establishment, be it Burger King, McDonald's, White Castle, you name it, you know exactly what kind of burger you're going to get. But it wasn't always that way. Let's go back in time, back to the 1950s. A soaring post-war economy had brought big changes, like the baby boom and sky-high employment levels. There was a gold rush happening in the 1950s and 1960s. This was a growth industry. Everyone wanted a piece of this really popular project. Uh, Americans had more disposable income than ever before, and they were eating out more than ever before. Chandler says this wasn't just workers in urban centers. It was suburban families, too. It was people on road trips. It was really food for the people in a, in a way that attracted crowds of all ages to come. And that was revolutionary at the time. Suddenly, a quick meal was more important than ever. Fast food is on the brink of explosion. Americans were obsessed with speed. Technology was available cheaply. There's car culture, the space race. By the mid-50s, a bunch of restaurants had jumped at the chance to give Americans food fast. White Castle had dominated the Midwest since the 20s. The West had McDonald's. 
Dairy Queen ruled the South starting in 1940. But they were all regional outfits, sticking mostly to their own corners of America. Enter Dave Edgerton and Jim McLemore, two Miami guys and Cornell alums in the restaurant business. Dave Edgerton is this ultimate tinkerer in that American sense. He's the kind of guy who's laboring in his garage. And then there was McLemore. He's one of those great American stories. His father lost all of his money in the 1929 crash and became a turkey farmer. His mother was taken away from him and never seen again. She went to an asylum. And he kind of just becomes this person who creates a path for himself. He works really hard in restaurants to build himself up to be an American businessman. And so he has this real drive to succeed and it influences everything he does. McLemore is a very driven person. He really has a, a, a strict vision for what he wants in this world, which is to build something that will end up taking over the world. The two were foils, different backgrounds, different temperaments, but they had a united and similar passion for business and food, and they decided to join forces. You've got two really aggressive businessmen with a lot of confidence and a lot of energy. This is Libby O'Connell. She's a historian at the Smithsonian Institution. They are very eager to win. They are very competitive, and they are willing to fight to get their company established to be the main competitor to a giant like McDonald's. It was Edgerton's idea. He convinced McLemore that the future was in beef. In 1954, he bought a small 18-cent burger business in Miami and convinced McLemore, who owned a restaurant nearby, to join him. McLemore invested his entire life savings of $20,000 into the venture. That's the equivalent of $211,000 in 2022 money. To him, the decision was a strategic one. McDonald's didn't have a strong foothold out east, so the opening was there. When Burger King comes into being, this is a moment where out in California, there were all these chains that had already kind of established themselves in Southern California, but it didn't quite exist on the East Coast in the same way, and Burger King was founded in Miami. But there's a problem. They weren't the only chain looking to grow. And it's a tough sell for them at first. Brian Simon is a professor of history at Temple University in Philadelphia. I mean, you know, in the kind of larger sense, they're successful, but they're having trouble kind of taking a huge bite out of McDonald's. But the duo kept going. They bet big on themselves. The name of their chain? Insta Burger King. That's right, Insta Burger King. Not a burger named after Instagram, no. The restaurant was named after its secret weapon, the Insta Broiler. The two men inherited the broiler when they bought the restaurant. It's a fancy new gizmo at the height of the 1950s tech futurism, or so Edgerton and McLemore think. Here's Adam Chandler again. The Instaburger machine was this crazy contraption with all of these levers and conveyor belts that was meant to cook burgers quickly. And it kind of fed into the tech fascination at the time. So the flame broiler gives Burger King this edge in a lot of ways because it tastes different. It's not cooked on a griddle. It has this backyard taste. It was kind of brilliant. It moved the hamburger patties through a broiler. A second level toasted the buns and even added sauces before the burgers are assembled and served. 
We were obsessed with assembly lines and speed, and we were enamored with the space race happening. So anything that was high tech was seen as being high quality and, and, and unique and forward thinking. Just one problem. The burgers are losing money. And the Instabroiler keeps breaking down. The problem with the Instabroiler concept was that it didn't work well. It was too complicated, it broke down too often. When you are building a concept that's all centered on speed, it has to work or else the line backs up and the concept fails. Now, the fact that the Instabroiler was not a small nuisance but a big one, something that kept breaking down over and over again, it's like a ticking clock. The thing was going to run them out of business. Then one day, Edgerton had had enough. He watched the metal grind together and decided he couldn't take it anymore. He went to go get his toolbox, but not to fix the machine. And rather than just walk away or fix it, he picked up a hatchet and he sunk it right into the Instabroiler. As the story goes, he was shouting the whole time, I can build a better machine than this pile of junk. It's a huge moment where you acknowledge that something is fundamentally broken in your business and decide, I can make something better. And that's what he said. It's a moment of madness, chaos. But out of the rubble of this cursed Instabroiler rises something new. Edgerton calls it the flame broiler. Weeks after the meltdown, he and a local mechanic created their continuous chain broiler. It would become the model for Burger King and for other fast food around the country. It worked. And there was another big plus, Libby O'Connell again. The flame broiler, that added a little more taste to the burger itself. So it tasted like it was freshly cooked instead of just reheated. The flame-kissed taste differentiated Insta Burger King from the competition. It became their ace in the hole. Suddenly, they were back in business. By 1957, they started expanding and had opened seven burger joints in Florida. The frame broiler wasn't Edgerton's only innovation. Edgerton redesigned the kitchen so meals weren't so standard. There was a little room for creativity and flexibility. A customer could have exactly what they wanted. They could have it their way. McDonald's couldn't do that. Edgerton shaped the kitchen at Burger King in a way that allowed for more freedom of constructing the sandwiches. And that was one of the key reasons why their whole brand personality allowed for special orders. But would a flame-broiled burger made your way right away be enough to take over the country? These burgers tasted good. Plus, they were now cooked more efficiently. But they were still struggling to get a foothold in Americans' diets until they had a third epiphany. That's after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So maybe you're like Libby O'Connell. Maybe you remember the first time you went through a drive-thru. Order the quarter pounder of beef. I have a first memory of a Whopper at Burger King, and they were bigger. They were noticeably thicker sandwich, and they were good. It's no secret that in America, the bigger, the better. We love our big burgers. But it wasn't always that way. Whether it's the White Castle slider or the McDonald's burger, it was pretty modest in size. Marsha Chatelaine wrote Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. She says back then, America wasn't used to a big burger, yet. They were talking about their restaurant as a place for people with big appetites, a place where you can get something like the Whopper. It takes two hands to eat it. Just like they took a hatchet to their Insta-broiler, Edgerton and McLemore took a proverbial sledgehammer to the idea of how big a hamburger should be. On a business trip in 1957 near University of Florida in Gainesville, they noticed this rundown drive-in restaurant with a ton of people lined up outside. The two tried it out. Not only did the burger taste good, it was pretty massive. That's when McLemore and Edgerton realized what they needed to do. Make a bigger hamburger. Enter the Whopper. Insta Burger King, now just called Burger King, didn't just have a charbroiled burger. They had a huge charbroiled burger. The big guy even got its own name. Unheard of for a piece of meat. So when the Whopper is introduced, very quickly, it becomes insanely popular. It takes off. You know, before the Whopper, there were just hamburgers. And what the Whopper really did was create an itch for something that was bigger and something that was branded and special that American consumers would seek out, knowing exactly what it would taste like and how it would be different. It changed the landscape of fast food. And all of the smaller burger chains around the country tried to replicate the Whopper in their own ways. You know, like McDonald's with their entry into the hamburger arms race, the Big Mac. Americans wanted a bigger burger because it really spoke to the time, which was all about abundance. You know, it had the lettuce, it had the tomato, it had the pickle, but they're both much bigger hamburgers than had ever been sold before in a fast food restaurant. The Whopper put Burger King on the map. Profits doubled between 1960 and 1962. But McLemore and Edgerton weren't done. Next, they took aim at a relatively new medium, TV ads. Television advertising represented a huge leap in the world of food. Before this, you could open a magazine, see a photo, On TV, you could see someone take a bite of the product. And you could take a bite out of your own competition, too. Three out of four people prefer the taste of a flame-broiled Whopper to the fried Big Mac. Burger King was very bold and very aggressive. And in fact, Burger King was one of the first fast food restaurants to actually call out a competitor by name in its commercials. A Whopper. 
the wall-to-wall hamburger, so big that just one is a whole meal. The bigger the burger, the better the burger, the burger's a bigger at Burger King. Brian Simon again. They run an ad, a really famous ad, that people talk about as the first kind of, you know, food attack ad. And it's questioning whether after you go to McDonald's, you're still hungry. <laughs> okay, I give up. Where's the meat? <laughs> you shouldn't let little things bother you. America has spoken. Now Burger King answers with a Whopper. So big that just one is a whole meal. Burger King did something else pretty novel with their marketing, too. Well, first of all, the whole Burger King ad of have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way. And that's how Burger King became the first ever company to air a commercial for a signature sandwich on national TV. They were really spending a lot of money on competitive advertising. As a consumer, I didn't think, wow, they're spending a lot of money. But today I know enough to realize that it affected their bottom line to go that hard at each other over and over again. Well, it paid off. Burger King sales went bananas. Profits rose by more than 50%. They poured their money back into expansion, supplemented with loans. And by 1965, Burger King expanded to 120 locations, on pace with McDonald's, their main competition. By 1966, McLemore and Edgerton had been at their business for almost a decade. There was debt, but there was also growth. But then there was a turning point. That year, McLemore and Edgerton received an offer from massive food conglomerate Pillsbury. Pillsbury offered to buy Burger King outright for $18 million, the equivalent of over $140 million today. Marsha Chatelaine says Edgerton and McLemore took the deal. And so I think for Pillsbury, they saw an opportunity in acquiring Burger King and really just taking it to the level that McDonald's was at. But they soon realized there was a big catch. But one of the things that Pillsbury didn't recognize was running a fast food business would require new skills, new types of talent within the organization, and new approaches to delivery of food. Selling food in a supermarket and selling food on a highway exit are two different enterprises. The sale flung the company's future into doubt. When Burger King made the deal with Pillsbury, in their perspective, they thought that they were selling to a brand that had a long history in the food business that was a known quantity to American consumers. They would fall behind the competition, right as McDonald's was going public and eating up market share. And Pillsbury has made a good acquisition, but they kind of take their eyes off the ball. They are not really pushing Burger King, and Burger King sort of goes into a decline. That may be the problem that has haunted Burger King for so long, is that their acquiring group has them in a second place instead of the forefront of the focus. Shortly after the deal, Edgerton stepped away. McLemore held on, at least for a little bit. But things were different. He couldn't call the shots anymore. And without Pillsbury's support, He couldn't compete with McDonald's or the other burger restaurants. And he certainly couldn't compete with the Big Mac. So by the 1970s, McLemore slowly begins to realize that his plans for world domination are going to be stifled. And he reaches this moment where he says to himself, 
maybe it's time for me to finally step away. And so he steps away. Burger King would go on without its two founders. For many years, Burger King did well. They expanded, even without the two titans steering the ship. Nowadays, there are upwards of 19,000 Burger Kings worldwide. But it's still lagging behind the competition. There are twice as many McDonald's around the world. Burger King may still be considered second fiddle to giant big brother Ronald McDonald. But its impact on American fast food is as big as its Whopper. Burger King may be the Jan Brady of American fast food, but part of what they did was create a national item, a national icon in the Whopper that really paved the way for all of the iconic food that followed it. And their franchises continue. There's something else, too. Part of Edgerton and McLemore's legacy is the way they saw the industry as an ecosystem. There were lots of different ways of making a hamburger. In fact, McDonald's founder Ray Kroc says he named the Big Mac for Jim McLemore, his friend and competitor. Now, he probably said that in jest, but it shows that the two guys probably saw their competition as a good thing. These guys saw that there was room for more than just one competitor to that fast food giant. And they really delivered the goods. They were successful in that goal. This success doesn't come just by saying, oh, here's some products. They worked really hard at what they did. They didn't do it exactly the same way. The culture was a little bit different than McDonald's, and that's still true today. If you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch The Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At the History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. Jim O'Grady is our consulting editor. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. And fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for The History Channel. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.